Welcome to the Economics Echo podcast, where distilling and discussing is the name of the game. For years, economists, central banks and others thought they understood inflation and how to keep it steady. But for the past 10 years or so, inflation just hasn't played by the rules. Despite high employment levels pre-pandemic in economies like the US, which usually causes inflation to rise, it has been mysteriously low across much of the world, and central banks unable to revive it. And this issue is so vital today, as the world faces so much economic uncertainty, making it more important than ever to solve the great inflation mystery and repair the global economy. First things first, though, a short introduction into inflation. So inflation is one of the most important concepts in economics. And luckily for us, it's also one of the simplest. Basically, it's the average rate that prices are rising. So when you have a rise or increase in the general price level, that leads to a fall in the purchasing power of money. You may have heard the phrase, uh, too much money chasing too few goods, which is another way of explaining inflation. So inflation can help economists to explain why a Big Mac, for example, cost less than $3 20 years ago, but it's nearer $6 today. And believe it or not, Inflation is actually healthy for an economy, but when inflation is high, volatile and unexpected, it can do a lot of damage to the way a capitalist system is run. It can make planning very difficult. It can make borrowing and lending money very difficult because you just don't know how much you're going to get in return. So let's look at how this thing is actually measured. Inflation. The rate of inflation is measured by the annual percentage change in consumer prices. The British government in the UK, of course, has set an inflation target of 2%. That's actually a well-publicized target. It's the same in the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank in the Eurozone, the United States. I think most, most central banks like that optimal 2% inflation target. And they use the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. So in the UK, it is the job of the Bank of England to set interest rates so that aggregate demand is controlled and inflation pressures are subdued and the target is reached. Now, the bank, which is the central bank, is is independent of the government with control of interest rates and it is free from political intervention. The bank is also concerned to avoid price deflation. Please note, though, that um, falling inflation does not mean falling prices. So, for example, in 2009, there was a drop in inflation from 5% down to 1% over the course of the year. Now, inflation was falling, yes, but the rate remained positive, meaning that prices were rising but just at a slower rate. So a slowdown in inflation is not the same as deflation. For this to happen, the annual rate of price inflation would have to be negative. How is the rate of inflation calculated, you ask? Well, the cost of living, 
is a measure of changes in the average cost of buying a basket of different goods and services for a typical household. So again, in the UK, the main measure of inflation is the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. However, CPI is not perfect. It does have limitations as a measure of inflation. So few households are average. Let's be clear about that. The published figure for inflation is rarely the actual rate of inflation experienced by different people for a number of reasons. Uh, one being the CPI, Consumer Price Index, is not fully representative. It will be inaccurate for the non-typical household. For example, 14% of the CPI index is devoted to motoring costs. Now, that's not really uh, applicable for households that do not own cars, who are not car owners. Number two, spending patterns. Single people have different uh, spending patterns from households that um, have one or more children. Three, the changing quality of goods and services. Although the price of a good or service may rise, this may also be accompanied by improvements in quality and performance of the product. So CPI doesn't really take that into account. Number four, new products. The CPI is slow to actually respond to new products or services that enter the market. Uh, the CPI basket is changed each year, but only a few times um, new products and goods fall out and come in every single year. Now, I talk about the great inflation mystery. And to understand this concept, you really have to rewind back in time to 1958, where there's a man by the name of A.W. Phillips, a former prisoner of war during World War II, where he famously created secret radios and tea heaters. But in 58, Phillips observed that wages for British workers tended to move up faster when employment was high. And he plotted this relationship between salary rates of change and employment levels on a graph to produce what is now known as the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve was used by central banks to help predict inflation. And pretty much what it showed was that as lots of people on work and wages were rising, it tended to lead to price increases. So pretty much when wages rise for workers, that pushes up costs for companies. And one way to offset that costs was to pass it over to consumers in the form of higher prices. And companies felt confident doing this because the economy was presumably doing well. Now, the opposite is also true. When the economy is weak and unemployment is high, wages stop rising and firms can't raise prices without losing customers. And we got a perfect, perfect applicable example of the Phillips curve in action in the real world during the 1970s, where we saw a spike in oil prices and military overspending to fund the Vietnam War meant that inflation rose rapidly in the United States. And the Federal Reserve, the United States Central Bank, raised interest rates to a record 20%. And it actually worked to bring inflation down 
by the 1980s from double digits down to single digits. But it also had the adverse effect of creating mass unemployment. But the idea that ups and downs in employment to explain changes in inflation didn't actually last that long, giving rise to one of the most pressing conundrums in economic history. During the 2008 financial crisis, we saw mass unemployment in the United States. But strangely enough, inflation didn't fall very far. As the economy recovered and unemployment reached a 50-year low in the US in 2019, inflation again remained stubbornly low, baffling economists and politicians alike. Now, there are actually four key reasons, three or four key reasons to explain why this, this uh, phenomenon happened in this way. One is that um, central banks have actually kept inflation low for so long that people no longer expect inflation to rise, even in a jobs boom like we saw pre-pandemic. Another reason is globalization. You know, this has helped to keep prices down through companies taking advantage of lower labor costs. And that has led to an influx of cheap imports from emerging markets like China. And then three, technology. You know, as machines continue to advance through AI and robotics, etc., they're a lot more productive and not to mention cheaper. And then finally, demographics, they play a huge part in this as well. Through aging population dynamics, particularly in advanced economies like Japan or Italy, um, you know, this lowers prices because increases in the dependent portion of the population, i.e. the elderly, that reduces the percentage in, of the working age population. And thus, employment levels in the economy um, depress inflation, as the Phillips curve tells us. Now, let's look at the relationship between COVID-19, the pandemic, and inflation itself. So fast forward to today, before inflation had the chance, the opportunity to properly correct itself, whack, the pandemic hit. But now, economists are saying an unexpected outcome of the disruption caused by the pandemic might actually help raise inflation and get it back on track. And they give a few reasons for this. One being the unprecedented um, action or coordination and cooperation between central banks and governments. Um, I say unprecedented because, you know, during the 2008 global financial crisis, let's be honest, it was central banks who were literally carrying the global economy on its back. Whether it was the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan, they were doing their bit. But, you know, governments weren't pulling their weight. But today, you know, as central banks are printing billions through quantitative and bond buying QE programs yet again, governments have actually pulled their weight a little bit. They've offered similar sized relief packages, ensuring that people are still able to sustain themselves and ultimately spend. And governments can do this in the knowledge that if they borrow and spend, they won't put upward pressure on interest rates because central banks will stop that from happening. 
then that should be a sh um, that should be a powerful stimulant to the economy. And this corporation could not only be good enough to pick inflation off the floor, it could also help repair the global economy altogether. Another reason given is pent-up demand. You know, as governments have effectively shut down economies across the world through lockdown restrictions in order to fight coronavirus, all of our normal daily activities and spending habits that we normally all enjoy have been disturbed from window shopping, going to the cinema, theatre, concerts, sporting events, going on holiday, etc. And because of this, household savings rates have actually shot up exponentially to levels we just haven't seen before. Now, the challenge for governments is firstly reopening economies, of course, in conjunction with the vaccines, and then unlocking and then unlocking the billions, literally billions of savings ready for spending in the economy. And then finally, a movement away from globalization once coronavirus is is uh, behind us. So it's no secret that the pandemic has disrupted the movement of goods, people and capital all around the world. And that interdependentness may actually gradually fade away as nations become more weary of each other. You know, just think about it. Borders all around the world have been pretty much closed or restricted for the best part of a year. And it will take a while to kind of return back to the, you know, pre-pandemic normal levels that we all used to see and love. And one consequence of that, um, as some are predicting, is that we are inevitably going to see more trade and technological wars going on, and they will become more apparent in the global economy. And you can clearly see this, um, this sentiment really feeding into the financial markets in how jittery they feel. Um, because they seem, to, they seem to think so, that we will see a huge uptick in inflation, probably this year, perhaps next year. When you put all of the above reasons I just put, uh, that I just mentioned above together. I mean, did you see the massive sell-offs in global stock markets last week? I think it was like Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Um, from Asia all the way to North America. And interest rates on government bond yields spiking. Spooking central banks all around the world. Okay, to conclude, what do I think? Listen, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that um, inflation is an important yet simple concept of economics. But over the last 10, 15 years, it has undoubtedly become more and more complex. So does this mean that the Phillips curve is dead, as some economists say? I would say no. I think it's merely hibernating. And I say it's hibernating because I know we talked about the great inflation mystery. But to be fair, we actually did see inflation. It was in asset prices, particularly stock markets, and just not in the real economy as we all expected. And that was because that quantitative easing, those bond buying programs, and that money that was being brandished by central banks, 
all around the world just didn't manage to reach the real economy. And it was just funneled back into the financial system. But this time round, today, in 2021, I just think there's something different about this crisis this time round. Because of all of those savings, those billions and billions of savings that households have got on their balance sheets. I like to think of them as quantitative easing. But it's quantitative easing directly in our hands as consumers and households. And that's ready to be spent as soon as the vaccines do their job, hopefully, and return us back to normality. So that's why I'm optimistic that we will see a pickup in inflation and hopefully pick up in global growth too. Well, that has been it for episode 33 of the Economics Echo podcast. Be sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast provider and join us next week for a brand new episode analyzing the budget 2021 delivered by Chancellor Rishi Sunak of the UK. And I'm excited for this one because I've got a couple of guests coming on. Um, there's one business which is directly impacted by some of the changes that we saw uh, from the budget. So it'll be interesting to, to hear their perspective on it, how it impacts their trading operations. And then we have another, you know, private individual, um, a full-time worker. So I'm interested to hear their perspective on the tax and spending changes um, for them as an individual. So a business and a private person, it should be a good episode, um, you know, tackling the budget uh, point by point and seeing, you know, objectively where the where we can give praise and where we can kind of criticize. So that should be exciting. Hopefully you can join us for then. But uh, until then, this is the Economics Echo podcast. Peace.